Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. It was pointed out to me at the end of last lecture that we had an hour-long lecture on the Crusades and didn't even finish the first Crusade. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, that's, this is why the titles of these lectures are deliberately ambiguous. It gives us... So, yeah, the last time the title was Deus Lo Vult, which is kind of vulgar medieval Latin, which means God wills it. All right? The battle cry of the First Crusade was that God wills it. They genuinely, genuinely believed that God willed them to do what they were doing, that God was responsible for their success, for the su success of all their enterprises and all of their endeavors. And this, in fact, is one of the most foundational premises of medieval life, both among Christians and among Muslims, in fact, and it's something that as modern people we have a hard time wrapping our minds around, is that for medieval Christians and for medieval Muslims, they genuinely, they genuinely believed that God's will was what determined their daily events. God's will was what determined the outcome of battles. God's will was what transferred empires and kingdoms from one man to another, from one, from one people to another. God's will was directly involved in human affairs. Now, in the Islamic world, this is still, in fact, the case. Um, a buddy of mine was in the Marine Corps and uh, was doing um, marksmanship instruction for the Saudi Arabian military. And he said, these guys, you couldn't teach them how to shoot. Right? They couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with an automatic rifle because what they would do is they would shoot and they wouldn't aim. They, every, every time they pulled the trigger, they would say, Inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah, right? God, you know, God wills it, God, God willing, God willing, God willing. If God wills it, it'll hit the target, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> this, this might seem a little bit naive to us, but in the medieval world, there is this kind of tension between human preparation on the one hand and trust in divine providence on the other hand. And we see this tension it, kind of at the foundation of the First Crusade, right? We talked a little bit last time about the first wave of the First Crusade was this rabble, that, you know, this this riffraff that gathered around Peter the Hermit, the strange charismatic figure, right? And they made their way to the east without any preparation of a human kind, right? They trusted that God would simply give them the victory without them exercising any human prudence or engaging in any kind of human preparation. So they made their way to the east and they got themselves slaughtered to the last man by the Turks, with the exception of Peter the Hermit himself, somehow comes out as the lone survivor of all of this. So in fact, where we're going to pick up the story here, we're going to pick up the story with the arrival of the real crusaders to Constantinople. That is, the lords who are going to really make up the backbone of the First Crusade. Now, these names are probably names that you're familiar with. Like, uh, you've heard of Godfrey of Bouillon, right? The famous Godfrey of Bouillon. You've heard of Bohemond, the great Norman warlord, right? Maybe you've heard of Hugh of Vermondois. No, right? Because he was a loser, right? <laughs> Most people haven't heard of Hugh, Hugh of Vermondois. He was, he was a lousy crusader. Stephen of Bois? No, right? Another one, another one, another one. Right? <laughs> yeah. But you've, you've heard of some of the great leaders. We've all heard of Bohemond, we've all heard of Godfrey of Bouillon, and we've all heard of Raymond of Toulouse. Right? Everyone's heard of Raymond of Toulouse, one of the greatest of them all. No, not everyone. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> 
So what we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the recruitment of these guys and what it meant to have them on Crusade, what motivated them, and what, what happens when they get involved. Basically, to, if one were to rank these lords in order of power, um, Raymond of Toulouse, whom I just mentioned, would clearly be the most powerful. Raymond of Toulouse is the wealthiest, he owns the most land, he's far more powerful than any of his own superiors in the feudal order of things, right? He's far more powerful than his king, far more powerful than, than many of his contemporary lords, right? Raymond of Toulouse is also probably the single most important leader on this crusade for another reason, and that is that the other leaders are young men. Raymond of Toulouse, on the other hand, is a middle-aged man. Raymond of Toulouse is in his 50s. He has a wealth of experience in politics and in battle. He's also one of the guys who most clearly um, keeps his eye on the goal of the crusade throughout the entire process. Now, because Raymond of Toulouse was considered to be the most mature, the most experienced, the most reliable leader, as well as the most powerful, Pope Urban II did a very special favor to Raymond of Toulouse. And that is this. Urban II gave Raymond of Toulouse the papal legate, the papal legate Adhimar of Laplie, who's going to be the other extremely important leader on the crusade. So that's kind of the cast of characters that we're dealing with here. We're dealing with great leaders like Godfrey, Bohemian, Raymond of Toulouse, and Adhimar of Laplie, the papal legate. Then we're also dealing with many lesser men, men like Hugh of Vermontois and Stephen of Bois, these men who fall short of their vocation here as crusaders. What happens is this. They made arrangements during the year of 1096 to go to Constantinople and use Constantinople as their embarkation point. They arrived not all at once, however. They arrived one by one, one lord at a time, arriving with his contingent, in many cases very sizable armies that they're bringing with them. Uh, The first lord to arrive here excuse me, is this fellow Hugh, Hugh of Vermondois. Now, Hugh of Vermondois, you'd think, you know, you'd think he'd be a manly fellow. He's the brother of the King of France. He's a powerful lord. Yet he shows up, and he finds himself completely overawed by what he sees at Constantinople. Now, we can hardly blame him, on the other hand, though. Imagine this. You're coming from Western Europe, right? You're coming from a part of the world where there aren't cities, right? There aren't cities in the sense that we know cities in Western Europe in the 11th century. There aren't cities in the sense that the ancient world knew cities. You're coming from a place where there's probably no city with a population larger than eight or 9,000 people. You come to Constantinople in the 11th century, you're coming to a city of a quarter of a million people. You're coming to a city in which the, the, the 10 or 12 largest cities in Western Europe could easily fit within Constantinople and not be missed. Right. So you're coming to this, this other planet, right? the wealth, the opulence, the beauty of the domes and the buildings, the urban fortifications, the walls. These are things that would be a completely unfamiliar sight to you. So you come here and it looks like Constantinople is the land of unlimited wealth and unlimited power. Right. We have to remember, medieval Europe is very much, it's very much the third world of the Mediterranean in the 11th century. So they're coming to Constantinople, they're coming to a place that's far more wealthy, far more opulent than what they're familiar with. So Alexius Comnenus, when he receives Hugh of Vermondois, he engages in the time-honored Byzantine practice of overawing foreigners. Right? He brings him into the palace. Right? Hugh of Vermondois is led from one room to another, each room more wealthy and more opulent than the next. He keeps expecting to find the emperor. Right? And they say, oh, no, that's, this is the room of just one of the servants or something like that. Oh, this is the room of you know, just the chancellor. This is the room of, oh, that, yeah, that, that's just where one of the legal scholars lives. No, no, no. 
Well, you get to see the emperors. And so finally he's brought into this chamber where Alexius sits on a throne. And it's by far the wealthiest and most opulent and largest of the rooms. And by this point, Hugh of Vermondois is probably dragging his jaw along the floor with him right, as he's walking through. And Alexius makes one intention very, very clear when he sees Hugh of Vermondois. He says, just to make sure that we're on the same page, you're going to have to take an oath. It's a feudal oath of fealty to me as Byzantine emperor. In other words, you're going to have to say that anything that you conquer, as long as it's for part of the former Roman Empire, anything that you conquer will belong to me. Now, Hugh of Vermondois initially resists, but he doesn't resist for long. Right? He's completely overawed, completely overwhelmed by the power of the emperor of Constantinople. And so finally, he takes this oath. It's really a feudal oath. Right? He makes himself a vassal to the emperor and swears that any conquests that he might be involved in will be handed over back to the Byzantine emperor with no further ado. Now, it's not likely that the Crusaders are going to go very far outside the bounds of the former Roman Empire. I mean, if you think about it, the boundaries of the former Roman Empire are so far flung you'd have to go to Persia to get outside of the form. So basically anywhere they go, anything they conquer, they're taking these oaths to hand it back to Alexius. Now the brilliance of Alexius is this. Well, it's partially good luck and it's partially brilliance. Okay, the good luck part for Alexius is that the crusade lords arrive one at a time. Right? They don't arrive all together. So he's able to take each one individually, bring him to the palace, impress him, just blow him away with the wealth and the opulence, and completely overwhelm the guy and, and get the guy to take the oath. Right? So this happens with Godfrey, this happens with all the other lords as they come in, one by one by one. Now perhaps the most interesting case of, of a lord arriving in Constantinople is Bohemond. Okay. Let me give you a little bit of background on Bohemond. Bohemond, about 10 years earlier than this, okay, in the 1080s, had fought his way along the road to Constantinople. Bohemond was a Norman. His father was Robert Giscard. Father and son had for decades waged a brutal war against the Byzantine Empire. They tried to carve out a little principality for themselves in the Balkans. They succeeded in carving out a principality for themselves in Sicily. Right, right across the water from Sicily you have Greece and the Balkans. They had fought their way across this land in the 1080s and had eventually been beaten back at great cost to the Byzantines. So it must have made an interesting spectacle to see Bohemond the Norman and his troops walking along the ancient Roman road that leads from Durazzo to Constantinople. So these guys are walking along. We're told that the Byzantine civilians actually gathered along both sides of the road. They kind of lined the roads like five deep to watch these guys pass. Oh my gosh, it's the Normans. I mean, could you imagine Osama bin Laden just kind of walking down the street? <laughs> you know, they're looking, why is Bowman and the Normans coming? And they're allies of the emperor, right? That's even weirder. It, it's, it's like, oh, there's Hitler. Yeah, he's an ally of the president now. Okay, <laughs> This is really weird for them. So Bowman the Norman comes in, and he behaves himself perfectly. Right? He comes into Constantinople. He meets the emperor Alexius, his former enemy. And he willingly swears the oath. He says, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll swear this oath of fealty to you, emperor. Oh, sure, sure. I'll assure you of my fidelity and my good faith. Okay. One leader comes in, though, who's not impressed with the emperor. And that is the powerful Raymond of Toulouse. 
Raymond comes in, and remember, this is the man who, more so than any of these other leaders, has a very clear religious motive and a very clear understanding of religiously what the priorities of the crusade are. That redeeming the relics of Jerusalem, helping the Eastern Christians, this is what it's all about. He doesn't want to play political games. If he wanted to play political games, Raymond could have stayed in France. So he comes back, and, and the emperor tries to impress him with all these things, and he, he tells Alexius, I'm not impressed. Okay, I'm not impressed. I've seen this kind of thing before. You know, I'm, I'm just really not blown away by this, and I'm not interested in taking your oath. And it gets a little bit sticky here. Alexius has to exercise a certain amount of pressure on Raymond. Finally, they come to a compromise. Okay, Raymond takes a very watered-down version of the oath. He says, I'll hand over any conquests to you as long as you come in person to claim them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Alexius has to be satisfied with that. And so, finally, in, well, in the spring of 1097, the crusade is able to make its way across the straits from the great capital city of Constantinople up here, across the Bosporus, to Asia Minor. Right? Now, their objectives at this point are very, very fuzzy. Right? The only clear objective that they have is that they want to get to Jerusalem and capture it. There's no clear understanding at this point that they're going to be engaged in state building, especially now that they've taken these oaths. The basic assumption is anything else that we conquer, we're probably just going to have it be taken over by the Byzantines. Right? So the objective is to go to Jerusalem, capture it, hand it over to the Byzantines, and go home. They start out, the first target along the way is the city of Nicaea. Now, Nicaea, at this point, close as it is to Constantinople, and in point of fact, Nicaea is one of the suburbs of modern-day Istanbul. Right? That's how close in it is to the city of Constantinople. Nevertheless, at this juncture, Nicaea was actually the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate. Right? Now, the Seljuks had this little sultanate in Asia Minor. It's interesting. You know what they called it? They called it the Sultanate of Rum. Rum means Rome, right? So they called their state Rome because it was on former Byzantine territory, and Byzantium is Rome. So they called their little state Rome. The capital of, of Rome for them is Nicaea. Right? Now, Nicaea is a very interesting little city. Uh, if you were to look at Nicaea from the air, it's, you have a city with walls on three sides. The fourth side is this giant lake thing. Right? So the fourth side is water. The three sides are walls. Right, and it's located right here. You can actually see it on a satellite map. There's a really decent-sized inland lake here, right by Nicaea. The problem, if you're going to lay siege to it, is that you have to have boats. The Crusaders don't have boats. They, that's why the Byzantines need to help them across the Bosporus. So they come over, they go to lay siege to Nicaea, and they're like, oh, we can kind of only cover three sides here. <laughs> um, in the meantime, though, the Sultan himself is not in Nicaea. The Sultan's name is Kilij Arslan. Kilij Arslan is kind of, he's engaged in some other activities outside the city. And he comes back and he's like, oh, there's some people laying siege to my city. <laughs> wow. It's apparent that he's not, he's not too frightened by this. Why? Because he just had experience with Peter the Hermit a few months ago. Right? He's thinking, oh, this will be kind of the same thing. So he gets a collection of his crack Turkish archers and troops, and, and they go and they attack the Crusade army, only to find that a cavalry charge with real Frankish knights is a much different phenomenon than a bunch of ragtag runaway monks. You know, th this is a very different thing. Kilij Arslan's army is actually shattered here at Nicaea by the First Crusade. Kilij Arslan himself flees, leaving behind in Nicaea 
his wife, his children, and most importantly, his treasury. Uh, everything is left behind in Nicaea. So Nicaea is now a great prize, and it's kind of there for the taking, for the crusade. But something else happens. Something happens that's going to erode the trust between the crusaders and the Byzantines a little bit. And that's this. The, uh, the city, the municipal authorities in Nicaea decide that they don't want to be conquered by the First Crusade. So what they do is they actually get in touch with Alexius. They get in touch with Alexius and they try to cut a separate deal. They say, okay, if, if we surrender to you, how about you don't let the Crusaders into our city? And Alexius says, well, that's a great deal for me, right? I get Nicaea, and I get Nicaea undamaged. <laughs> so what Alexius did was he secretly dragged some boats overland onto the lake, right? Sailed with the boats up to the sea wall of Nicaea, was allowed in, raised his banners up on the walls of Nicaea, and then the sun comes up in the morning, and the Crusaders look up, and they see Byzantine flags flying from the walls. Right? So needless to say, the Crusaders are steamed by this. Right? They feel like they've been cheated out of their conquest. And perhaps most disturbingly to the Crusaders is this fact that the Byzantines were able to cut a separate deal with the Turks. That bothers them. That bothers them. The trust begins to erode at this point. So the Crusaders complain a little bit about this. They say, come on, a little bit of pillage never hurt anyone, right? Uh, but Alexius says, no, 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 it's my city now, and I don't want it damaged. So thank you very much for your services. You can move on to the next thing. The Crusaders don't have a choice at this point. They begin a long and very, very arduous march across the hot and barren interior of Asia Minor. The interior of Asia Minor is very high uh, in altitude. So in terms of the topography of it, we are talking about a very arid plateau here that in summertime gets very, very hot, and in wintertime it gets very, very cold. Right? The Crusaders have the misfortune of marching across it in summertime. They're marching across throughout the summer of 1097 here. Uh, one of the hottest summers on record in the Middle Ages, and we're kind of at the heart of the medieval warm period. Right? In the 11th century, the, um, the, the polar sea ice is actually smaller than it is now. Right? That, that's how hot the climate is. So, yeah, it's global warming. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's clearly those, uh, those horses with the dung and everything. <laughs> Emissions. Anyway. So, they have to march across the hot, barren interior of Asia Minor, and they're, in a vague sense, making their way towards where they can turn right and head down the coast. Right? They only have a, a kind of really a vague sense of what they're doing. The next city that they're going to hit along the way is going to be Antioch. Now, the, this march across Anatolia is unbelievably difficult. Many of the horses died, uh, and one of the chroniclers says, you would have seen guys riding on oxen, you know, even like taking their possessions and strapping them to the backs of dogs and things like that. Uh, you know, you have this, this imagery. One of the chroniclers said, you know, you either would have laughed or you would have wept if you had seen what was going on here. This is a brutal, very, very difficult march across desert terrain. Finally, a depleted and weakened First Crusade army makes its way to Antioch in the fall of 1097. Now, what do, what do they find when they come to Antioch? Well, they find a, a few, there's a few different things going on politically in the Islamic world at this time. Um, very fortunate for the Crusaders is the fact that the Islamic world is experiencing unprecedented disunity 
at this point in time. In fact, the disunity of the Islamic world is, on the natural level, the prime reason for the success of the First Crusade. So they come up against Antioch, and they come up against a city that has a Turkish emir, okay, a Turkish garrison in the city. The majority of the population of Antioch, though, is still Christian. It's Greek or Armenian Christians actually make up the, the bulk of the population of the city. And what they've done is they've kind of stumbled into this region where they're surrounded by little tiny Turkish emirates. Okay. So while the bulk of the army stumbles upon Antioch, yes, it's true, they're facing a formidable city. In fact, the walls of Antioch in the Middle Ages had 400 towers all around the walls. These are massive fortifications that they're going to try to assault. Yet at the same time, they're coming across a, a Muslim world that's politically very disunified. While the main body of the army lays siege to Antioch, an offshoot of the army, led by Godfrey of Bouillon's brother, Baldwin of Bouillon, who is actually Godfrey's older brother, okay, makes its way to the east, towards Edessa. Edessa is the city far out here, you know, towards Mesopotamia. They make their way to Edessa because they've heard about some of the disunity. Right? They've heard that the citizens in Edessa are willing to throw off the Turkish yoke. Baldwin and a kind of contingent, his own personal contingent of crusaders, makes their way out to Edessa and captures it in the fall of 1097. Now, keep that in the back of your mind. Edessa is the first real crusader conquest that the crusaders get to keep. Okay, and it's important because of its geographical location. Edessa is going to serve as an important buffer zone separating the crusaders down here from the powerful Turkish city of Mosul. Mosul, which is out here. Okay, modern-day Kurdistan, if anyone's familiar with that. Okay. So, the bulk of the crusade army, however, is down here at Antioch. Now, I just mentioned that the summer of 1097 was difficult. The winter of 1097 to 1098 is even more difficult. Okay. The Crusade army finds themselves laying siege to an enormous city, a, a city that's so huge that they can't even, they can't even invest it fully. Right? And they can't really hope to, with a direct assault to take this powerfully fortified of a city. Right? Not only do they find themselves in a difficult position for that reason, right? They, they're in a difficult position because they start to hear rumors of stirrings in the Islamic world in response to this crusade. Right? What they hear, in fact, is that the ruler of Mosul, a Turkish Atabeg by the name of Kerbogan, was actually raising a large army to come crush the First Crusade. He was forming alliances with other emirs, he was preaching jihad, and he was trying to assemble an army powerful enough to crush the First Crusade like a bug. Right? So they hear about Kerboka, they hear about happenings in Mosul, and in the meantime, they're going through a very difficult winter. Now, the winter of 1097 to 1098 was cold, and it led to famine. Right? You're talking about men on a, in this ice-encrusted landscape right, who've exhausted all the food supplies that they brought with them. They've exhausted the food supplies that they could obtain from the countryside. Now winter sets in. There's no crops available for forage. There's no fruit on the trees. There are no animals that they can hunt. Right? There's no food anywhere. What happens is horrific. The chroniclers of the First Crusade tell us that through this winter, the Crusaders not only starved to death in large numbers, but the ones who survived, survived by eating grass, thistles, and the seeds that they found in the horse's dung. 
some of the crusaders got desperate enough to eat their own horses. Now, that might not sound so bad for modern people. We're used to the idea of eating horses, right? I do it every day. But uh, for a knight to eat his horse was um, the ultimate sign of desperation, right? A knight would sooner eat his sister than eat his horse, right? Not literally. But <laughs> there's a reason why I say that, okay? The horse is not only an important status symbol for the knight, the horse is also his pr principal means of combat, right? A knight without a horse is like a fighter pilot without an airplane, you know? <laughs> the horse is his means of combat, and the, the collective charge of a group of mounted knights is the principal tactical weapon of Frankish crusaders, right? It's the one thing that Muslims don't have that they do, right? So the, the fact that they start eating horses should be a very alarming sign. They'd rather be eating the dung than eating the horses. Uh, but this winter is very, very, very difficult. The army is severely weakened. The numbers are severely reduced. Cannibalism even sets in. This is where we get the stories of cannibalism. Now, when I say cannibalism, I don't mean killing people to eat them. I mean eating the dead bodies. And that's how difficult this winter was. Okay, finally, the spring comes of 1098. And, they start, and when spring comes, who do, you think, who do you think the spring is going to bring with it? Kerboga, right? The Atabeg of Mosul. So, so they know this, and they know this, and, and they're kind of desperate for a solution. What are we going to do here? Right? We're stuck before the walls of this great city, and if this army comes, we're dead. We're all dead. We're crushed between the army and the walls. Right? In the meantime, Bohemond, the great Norman, is exercising all of his wit to solve the situation. Okay? Bohemond, in fact, realizes that the population of the city is or maybe his greatest asset. In point of fact, we know that Bohemond spent many a late night chatting up one of the gatekeepers of Antioch, who was in fact an Armenian. And so he, he chatted with him every night, saying, oh, so you're an Armenian, you want to open the gate? No. Um, what would it be worth it to you to open the gate? Oh, I don't know, a lot. How much? Eventually, they agree on a price. And the Christian gatekeeper opens the gate at night. The army of Bohemond storms into the city and captures it and lets the other crusaders in. Forty-eight hours later, Kerbogas shows up. And lo and behold, the importance of Edessa has been proved because it turns out that on his way to Antioch, Kerbogas had spent three days in Edessa trying to capture Edessa. So if it hadn't have been for the capture of Edessa, the capture of Antioch would never have happened, and the whole rest of the First Crusade would never have happened. Right? So Kerboga comes, and he finds what? He finds the, the gates closed, and he finds the same kind of problem that the Crusaders had, which is now Kerboga sitting there saying, okay, we've got these massive fortifications. I have a large army, but what do I do? Maybe I will start another siege. Right? Now, if you're the Crusaders, you're inside the city, but is there a lot of food inside the city? No, because the city's been being besieged for however long. Right? So you get inside the city and you find that conditions are not much better off in there. Right? So what ends up happening is they're kind of starving and praying in the city of Antioch right? throughout the spring and summer of 1098. Things get really, really difficult and bitter in there until they realize, look, we're, just, we're all going to starve to death if something miraculous doesn't happen in here. Fortunately for the Crusaders, something miraculous does happen. What happens is this. Is it's very curious. In the Crusade Chronicles, whenever things get difficult for a crusade, 
these reports of visions and miracles and ecstasies start to multiply, right? So you get this, this, these reports of monks having visions and priests having visions and holy women having visions, right? One of the most significant of these is a monk by the name of Peter Bartholomew. Now, this is not the same guy as Peter the Hermit. It's a different guy. Peter Bartholomew has this vision, and he goes to the crusade leaders, and he says, dudes, look, uh, I just had a vision. St. Andrew appeared to me, right? And St. Andrew told me that the lance head that pierced the side of Christ is somewhere here in Antioch, somewhere here buried. And if we could find it, we could blow the Turks away with it, right? And they kind of look at him. <laughs> and they, they, they scratch their chins and they say, well, Peter, there's a little bit of a problem. And that is that we just saw the lance head when we were in Constantinople. Because that's where it's kept. So it can't be here. <laughs> so Peter, he keeps pressing. He says, no, seriously, the one in Constantinople must be a fake. It must be a fake because St. Andrew told me the real one is here. It's somewhere in the city. It's buried. Uh, and in fact, he showed me where it was. So if you want, I can go dig it up. And they're all saying, no, 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 this is ridiculous. Adamar of Lapuy, the papal legate, is actually the most adamant, no pun intended, he's the most adamant about saying, you are a crackpot, you are a lunatic, and you're a fraud, and you're a liar, and I don't believe you. There is no lancehead. Just quit your yammering, right? But Peter Bartholomew won't give up until finally Raymond of Toulouse, I think, realizes, okay, you know, it's not like anything else is going to save us here. So it's worth a shot. Right? So Raymond says, okay, we're going to have a dig. All right, where did St. Andrew tell you the last one? <laughs> he takes him. It's in this church. Right? So he takes him into the church. He says, pull up the flagstones. They pull up the flagstones. There's dirt underneath. He said, dig in the dirt. So they start digging, and they dig, 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 and they dig. Right? And this hole is getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and they're not finding any lancet. And then finally, Peter Bartholomew, uh, he is looking there, and he's like, no, no, it's in there, it's in there. Raymond of Toulouse is getting really antsy. He's saying, look, I staked my reputation on you here. I stuck my neck out. Now you're digging and digging and digging. You're not finding any lancet. Finally, Peter Bartholomew very dramatically leaps into the hole. He goes, it's there! He jumps into the hole, kind of like, you know, messes around down there for a little bit, and then pops up holding a lance head. I've got it! It was down there! Everyone kind of looks at him and says, you had that under your shirt. When you <laughs> and he says, no, 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 it was down there, I found it, I found it. And there's still so much skepticism of Peter Bartholomew that he says, all right, I'll prove that this is the lance head. Right? I'll prove it by an ordeal. Now, you all, you're familiar with the concept of ordeal, right, in the Middle Ages. An ordeal is you deliberately put yourself in a life-threatening or fatal situation, right, and if you come out of it, it shows that God is with you, right, because normally you die in such a situation. So Peter Bartholomew says, to prove that this is the real lancehead, right, I'm going to walk through a burning pyre, and I'm going to come out the other side holding it, and I'll still be alive. Just watch. So he's like, okay, this whole big crowd gathers, right? They got a big flaming pyre, you know, flames 20 feet high. Peter Bartholomew walks in holding the lance head, and he walks in, and uh, he's in there, and he's dead, whatever. But then he comes out the other side, right? He comes walking out the other side. His habit is completely burned off of him, right? But he comes out holding the lance head, 
and then he's instantly acclaimed. People grab him and they throw him up on their shoulders and start cheering, yelling, it's the Lance, it's the Lance, it's the Lance, it's the Lance, it's the real Lance, right? And Peter Bartholomew dies like the next day. <laughs> but by that point, it doesn't matter. Right? There's so much enthusiasm that's spread about the Lance. People realize this is the Lance that will save us. This is the Lance. It's the real one. So now it's just a Lance head. right? So they take it and they put it on a wooden spear. Right? And they move it up to the front gate. And they gather the entire army of the First Crusade behind it. Caraboga has been sitting out there for a long time with his emirs and trying to keep peace among the emirs. And we get the sense that typical Turkish disunity has kind of arisen in Caraboga's army. There are emirs that he's recruited for this that aren't really too hot on Caraboga personally. And they're getting a little antsy when all of a sudden the gates of Antioch open, much to his shock, and the crusade army starts coming out. We have a sortie led by Bohemond at the front with the Holy Lance, Raymond and Godfrey and all the other leaders. Right? And as the crusade army starts filing out the gate of the city of Antioch, Kerbogar realizes that he sees more and more and more and more guys coming out. So he realizes the army is a lot bigger than he thought it was. The other emirs realize this too, and they all flee. <laughs> Next thing you know, Kerbogar is left standing there Guys, guys. <laughs> and so the army of the Turks simply evaporates before the lands, right? And so the, for, at this point, there's no further doubt in the minds of the Crusaders that it is the real lands and that this was a genuine miracle. So with the dispersal of the Turkish army now, the Crusaders are left in the possession of this great city of Antioch, greatest Christian city, patriarchal city, etc. They're able to gather food in the vicinity. They're actually able to come down and take possession of the port of Antioch, which is Latakia, gives them a Mediterranean port. Now the Crusaders are really in business. The only problem is that it's at Antioch that the real divisions between the Crusaders and Byzantines emerge. Here's where our man Stephen of Blois comes into play. Stephen of Blois was outside the city while Kerboga was besieging it. And he was walking along, he saw the size of Kerboga's army, and he said, nah, nobody can survive that siege. The First Crusade is done. I'm going home. In the meantime, though, Alexius, great emperor of Constantinople, is coming down with an army of his own to join the First Crusade. Stephen of Blois makes it a point to rendezvous with Alexius and tell him not to come. So Alexius and Stephen of Blois simply go home. The First Crusade then miraculously is able to break the siege on its own. How do they feel about the Byzantines now? The common sentiment among them is that Alexius is not entitled to these conquests because he's abandoned the Crusade army in their hour of need. In other words, that Alexius failed in his obligations as a feudal lord. So at this point, it's, it's pretty much all the Crusaders, with the exception of Raymond of Toulouse, right, who have decided we're not handing over any conquest to this guy. Right? He deserted us, he abandoned us, he betrayed us to the Turks. It's interesting, Raymond of Toulouse is the one guy who refuses to take the vow, and he's the one guy who does kind of insist on the prerogatives of the Byzantine emperor. Right? He tells him, no, 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 we can't be too hasty about that. One reason for this is that one, there's one crusade leader in particular who wants to make Antioch his own. Bohemond the Norman. Bohemond says, look, I bribed the gatekeeper. I led the sortie. I really took the city single-handedly. This, sh- this city should be mine, but 
the other crusaders are looking at him and saying, look, we're not out here to claim personal thieves. We're here to go redeem Jerusalem. So we should leave Antioch behind. It's a distraction. We'll leave it in the hands of Alexius or something or whatever, but not you. Right? No one wants Bohemond to have it except Bohemond himself. As a result, the crusade stalls at Antioch. All right, the arguments go back and forth, but the leaders, because they can't agree on what to do with Antioch, they go nowhere. Right? And this lasts for months. It lasts into the fall of 1098, until finally the rank and file, the pious you know, underlings of the First Crusade at one point, barged into a meeting of the lords, and they told the lords, if you will not march to Jerusalem and redeem it with us, we will tear down the walls of Antioch and then we'll go do it ourselves. That's sufficient to convince them. They all set out. Bohemond stays behind. They all set out, this, this time, with Raymond in the lead. Raymond goes barefoot in the garb of a pilgrim at the head of the army, and they go and make their way down from Antioch to Jerusalem. Now, here's where Islamic disunity becomes critical. Okay. What had happened in 1098? I mentioned this briefly last time. In 1098, remember, the Turks were this disorganized, disunified entity. There's a thousand little Turkish principalities all around here. But there's one great Islamic state in the region, and that's Egypt. Egypt is under the rule of the Fatimid Caliphate. The Fatimid Caliphate is a Shiite entity. Right? Their capital is in Cairo. They hold these great cities of Alexandria, Damietta. In 1098, the Fatimids had actually attacked the Turks and captured Jerusalem, of all things. So Jerusalem was captured in 1098 by one group of Muslims fighting another group of Muslims. Now, the Fatimid Shiites, when they captured Jerusalem, they actually sent a message up to the Crusaders saying, uh, you guys don't have to come down anymore because we, we got it. <laughs> and they sent message after message offering to form an anti-Turkish alliance with the First Crusade, you know, completely misunderstanding the aims and the motivation of the First Crusade. It's one of the most hilarious episodes in all of medieval history. Right? The First Crusade is, just, is kind of baffled by these messages. They continue to make their way down. In the meantime, what about these Turkish cities? What about Tripoli, Beirut, Sidon, Tyre, Acre? Each of them is under the command of a petty emir of sorts. Are they going to be interested in stopping the First Crusade? No. Why? Because the First Crusade is on its way to attack the Fatimids, right? <laughs> So not only do the Turks in these cities let them through, they actually give them provisions and supplies. Oh, you're going down to attack the Fatimids? That's cool. We don't like them either. <laughs> so the First Crusade exploits the political disunity of the Islamic world, makes its way down just north of Jaffa, is the beginning of the old Roman road, the road inland that goes from the coast to the ancient city of Jerusalem, which is far inland, a couple days' march inland. So they make their way down, and they turn inland away from the coast, right, with Raymond in the lead. They arrive at the walls of Jerusalem in June of 1099. What they find is a very difficult tactical situation. It's similar to Antioch. They don't have a great deal of siege equipment of the proper kind to assault a city like this. But what they find in Jerusalem is they don't have time to wait out a whole siege. The reason is because, you guessed it, they hear about the Fatimid army on the march towards Jerusalem. And they realize, we don't want to get crushed between the walls of Jerusalem and an enormous Fatimid army. So we have a limited amount of time here in which to capture the holy city. 
So while they're kind of pondering over this, this problem, very fortuitously in July of 1099, a group of ships, Genoese and English ships, docks at the city of Jaffa. The ships are filled with wood, rope, hammers, wooden pegs, all the things you need to make siege equipment. Right? So the, the crusaders go, they get these things, they unload them, and then they take the ships apart. They actually get the, many of the wooden beams from inside the ships, and they drag all of this stuff towards Jerusalem, and they begin to assemble siege equipment. Now, when I say siege equipment, what do I mean? Catapults. Some, yeah, maybe. Maybe they're building some little catapults, but much more important, they're building towers. Right? Mobile towers. You build these large wooden towers with wheels that you can roll up to the walls of a city. So you have the knights inside the tower. They're shielded to a certain extent from the fire, from the walls. You know, archery, burning pitch, whatever else is getting shot out at you from the walls. And then you can roll the thing at, you know, like one mile a day <laughs> up towards the walls. <laughs> it's very, very difficult and arduous work. But they do, they do great things with siege towers during the Crusades. There's actually one point on the Fifth Crusade in Egypt where they, they build a floating siege tower on the Nile River, because there's this castle in the middle of the Nile. So they build this floating siege tower. And, and this, this is just a little tangent, but the problem with a floating siege tower is that you float over to the castle, and as you float, you kind of go like this. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> so, you <know. laughs> so what you have to do is you have to create a rotating ladder. So they actually have a rotating ladder with pulleys. And as they float, they kind of end up going like this, and then rotate the ladder around. <laughs> That's great. So, so they do great things with siege towers. So in any event, in July of 1099, they're able to finally build the siege towers. They build a few of these things. And they start the painstaking process of rolling them towards the wall right? while you're under withering fire coming from the wall. Our flaming arrows, regular arrows, burning pitch, liquid, uh, liquid niter and saltpeter, and all of these these burning hot things that they knew how to do in the Middle Ages. They didn't have gunpowder, but they had other things that were really pretty difficult. These napalm-like burning liquid things that they could throw at you. Um, so you're getting hit by all this stuff while you're trying to roll your wooden siege tower towards the walls. Okay. So finally, the things are, are going very, very poorly. Uh, and they realize that they, they need another religious boost. Right? Because things are, things are very, very difficult. And what happens is interesting. There's another priest named Peter. Right. Although this guy's name is Peter Desiderius. Right. So therapy, we have Peter the Hermit, we have Peter Bartholomew, and we have Peter Desiderius. And Peter Desiderius has a vision where he says God tells him in the vision that if we pray, fast, do penance, and march around the walls of Jerusalem singing, just like the Israelites did at Jericho, God will give it into our hands. Right. So if you're the Fatimid army, you're, you're kind of sitting in there, and one day you just look out your window. <laughs> they doing? <laughs> you know, marching around the wall like this. Uh, doing, like, well, this is weird. So they march around. They actually come to the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, Peter the Hermit, who's still with the army, preached one of these famous homilies, just like he had preached in France so many years ago. Rallies them, gets their spirits up on the Mount of Olives. They go back to their siege towers. They start rolling them towards the walls with renewed energy now. Right. They finally reach the walls, and it's Godfrey of Bouillon who reaches the wall first. He drops down his little gangplank thing, the knights charge across into the city, and Jerusalem is theirs. 
So, we discussed this a little bit last time, but by the laws of war that were current in the Middle Ages, it would have been completely acceptable for the Crusaders to kill every human being they found in Jerusalem. That was, a, that was a convention of war that was adhered to by all Christians and by all Muslims. It was adhered to by the Byzantines, it was adhered to by the Westerners, and it was certainly adhered to by the Muslims. In fact, the First Crusade army does not kill everyone in the city. Not only do they not kill everyone in the city, they don't even come close. All right, they do, there's some initial killing as they kind of swirl their way into the city. All right, but the most prominent citizens of Jerusalem were allowed to purchase their freedom, uh, many were simply allowed to leave. Others stay. Right. Interesting fact, when they come into Jerusalem, do they find any Christians in Jerusalem? No, they don't. They don't. The reason why is because the Fatimid governor of Jerusalem realized that he didn't want to have another Antioch. Right? He had heard what had happened at Antioch, that a Christian in the city opened the gate, didn't want this to happen again. So all the Christians from Jerusalem had been expelled prior to the First Crusade's arrival at Jerusalem. Um, Although Bethlehem at this point was a hundred percent Christian town, if you realize that, it's, and um, you know, interestingly enough, this is just a little side comment about the plight of Palestinian Christians. You know, as recently as 20 years ago, Bethlehem was a completely Christian town, right? But just in the last 10 to 20 years, the Christians in the Middle East have had such trouble because they haven't been able to survive our foreign policy over there, and, and you know, Bethlehem is now probably about 10 percent Christian, and it, it's tragic. Oh. But the community is growing. I was just there in January. Oh, you were there. Good. They've been building That's good. People, people are fleeing, and they yeah. build housing there. That's good news. That's good news. Yeah, it's, it's been very, very difficult. I mean, the church and the nativity, the, the Israeli army laid siege to it a few years ago, and it's just a nightmare. But in any event, the Crusaders, they do find plenty of Middle Eastern Christians here in Palestine. Now, having taken Jerusalem, right, the Crusaders face this enormous challenge. The challenge is this. Okay, we've captured Jerusalem. Now what? Now what? Right? Remember that enormous Fatimid army that's on the march? It's still on the march. And what, I mean, what else do we possess in the Middle East right now? Uh, if we're the Christians here, we possess Jerusalem, we possess Antioch and Latakia and Edessa, but nothing else. Right? These towns that we passed through on the way, we didn't conquer them, we just passed through them. Right. Now, Jerusalem is far inland from the coast. It's isolated from any sea-based support. Right. And we're going to be the target of this massive Egyptian army coming up towards us. It's a difficult situation. Even, even if we are able to defeat and turn back that Egyptian army, we're faced with the fact that we're still surrounded by Turkish emirates. I mean, Damascus over here, for example. Damascus is an enormously powerful and wealthy Turkish emirate in this period. We still have Mosul that's very powerful, uh, and all of these Turkish states along here. We still have the, the Seljuk Turks up here in Asia Minor. It's a very difficult situation. We're surrounded by enemies. So the, the challenge is how do you create any kind of a permanent conquest here? Right? What they do is, is astounding. It's absolutely remarkable how the Christians in the Middle East here, the Frankish Christians in the, in the Middle East, are able to build a defensive, um, a defensible position here in Jerusalem. In the first place, with, with regard to the city of Jerusalem itself, they realize our initial challenge is we have to defeat this Fatimid army. What they decide to do is they actually go on the offensive. Instead of waiting for it, the Christians actually leave Jerusalem uh, and they go down to the city of Ascalon, Right, on the coast near Gaza City in the Gaza Strip, uh, near the Gaza Strip today. They go to Ascalon and they find there the entire Fatimid army 
sitting around campfires singing songs, right? Not drinking because Muslims don't drink, but they're sitting, you know, sitting around singing songs. And um, they, the First Crusade army actually comes up at night and sweeps through the camp and destroys the army. So the Fatiman army is, is wiped out like that. After that battle, that's kind of the final big battle of the First Crusade, the main problem then is that everyone goes home. 99% of the survivors of the First Crusade go back to Europe within a year. So how do you build a kind of defensible uh, political entity there? It's, the answer is with great difficulty, right? <laughs> um, Godfrey of Bouillon actually takes possession of Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, he, only, he only lives till around 1100. He lives oh, maybe a year, maybe a little more than a year. I think he dies late in the year 1100. Right? So Jerusalem is left then without a king. Uh, what ends up happening is there's some question at this point. What should Jerusalem be? Should Jerusalem be a kind of separate political entity ruled only by the church? Or should it have a king the way that other states do? Or you know, should we give it back to the Byzantines? What should we do? Well, it turns out giving it back to the Byzantines really isn't an option for several reasons. One of which is that the Frankish lords are not interested in giving it back to the Byzantines. The other of which is that the Byzantines aren't interested in taking it right now. So that's not an option. What about turning it into an ecclesiastical polity of some sort? You know, this is proposed by Dembert, Dembert of Pisa, the first patriarch of, uh, of Jerusalem, who's a Latin. And he says, well, you know, what we could do is we could, I could just be in charge. Right? Uh, no one's really too big on this. So what happens is that the barons who are left in Palestine, they end up calling upon the guy who conquered Edessa so long ago, Baldwin of Bouillon. They bring Baldwin of Bouillon down, and he's crowned king of Jerusalem, and he's known to history as Baldwin I. King Baldwin I then reigned until 1118 in this critical phase of carving out a kind of defensible polity here in the Latin East. He ends up successfully conquering many of the coastal cities. The coastal cities are absolutely crucial. They become the backbone of the Latin holdings here in Palestine. Okay, Baldwin of Bouillon does success with very, very little manpower. He is successful at building up a somewhat defensible, somewhat stable feudal state in Palestine. His major skill is that he's able to prevent infighting. He's very, very good at getting people to agree with one another and, and stop backbiting and fighting with one another. Um, he's succeeded by a couple of other very, very capable rulers. Baldwin II, who reigns from 1118 to 1131, is very, very successful as well. It's in the reign of Baldwin II that we see the foundation of the military orders, these orders of fighting monks who were dedicated to the Holy Land, the Templars and the Hospitallers in particular. A little bit later on, we get the Teutonic Knights as well. These guys become the backbone for the defense of the Holy Land. Okay. Um, things get a little bit difficult in the 1140s because there's a, a Turkish emir named Zengi who kind of stirs things up. And he actually comes in and captures the city of Edessa in 1145. All right. The result is another crusade. The second crusade um, is called in 1147. Uh, they come to the Holy Land. It's very unsuccessful. that They don't really do much in the Holy Land. But what we start to see in the history of the crusading movement is really beginning with the Second Crusade, we start to see a diversification of objectives on the part of the crusading movement. In other words, what the popes start realizing is that they can use this weapon of crusade right, to attack other Islamic targets and defend Christendom. 
So on the Second Crusade, for example, the Holy Land wasn't the only target. Right. Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, was captured from the Muslims on the Second Crusade right, and placed into Christian hands. King Alfonso of Portugal captures it with the help of English knights who were uh, sailing down in order to go into the Mediterranean. They help him capture Lisbon. Um, other, another city on the coast of Spain, Almeria, you know, it's a city in Catalonia, was also captured from the Muslims on the Second Crusade. It was captured by Genoese. Right? So what we start to see is that crusading becomes something that's not solely devoted to the capture of the Holy Land in Jerusalem. As the 12th century wears on, crusading becomes this diversified thing that can be used to defend Christendom, uh, to roll back the tide of Islamic conquests anywhere in the world. Right? In the meantime, in the Latin East, things, the going is actually really good in the 1160s and in the 1170s. Oh, In the 1160s and in the 1170s, um, the Latin kings of Jerusalem become the most powerful lords in the entire Middle East, in point of fact. They become more powerful than the Fatimids. They become more powerful than the Turks. 1160s and 70s, especially in the reign of Amalric, came to Jerusalem. It really represents kind of the apogee of the power of the Latins in the East. So there is this idea floating out there that the conquests produced by the First Crusade were unstable, indefensible, and that they kind of went away after a short time. It's not completely accurate. In point of fact, the Latins retained possessions in Palestine for 200 years after the First Crusade. Right? And this takes an enormous amount of effort and political genius. And in a sense, there are times where the Latin kingdom in, in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, is the most stable political entity in the entire region. Right? Things start to get really bad for them, though, in the 1180s. Right. Here's the problem. Remember I told you Islamic disunity is the key to Christian success in the Middle East? Christian disunity is also the key to Islamic success. What happens is that the kingdom of Jerusalem becomes torn up by different factions in the 1160s and in the 1170s. Right. One of these factions is, is led by this goofy fellow, Renaud of Châtillon. Have you ever heard of this guy? Um, he, he, was, he was portrayed recently in a movie, uh, and he wasn't portrayed accurately because they made him look like a Templar in the movie. He wasn't a Templar. Um, but Reno of Châtillon was, in fact, a cad. Um, he, was this guy, he was a kind of independent freebooter warrior who liked killing people and burning things. And um, what he did, for example, was he, he came to the Middle East from Europe and started making trouble right away. And he could make more trouble than most people because he was a very charming and, and good-looking man. Right? And there's something about um, just that, that outlaw personality that's very attractive to women. And, you know, that's whatever. Uh, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> if I knew, believe me. But anyway. Well, you're right. I like to know. But yeah. But Reno of Châtillon kind of exemplifies this, right? Um, he comes, he, he gets a few of his buddies, for example, uh, in around 1160 or so, well, it, really in the 1150s, actually, he does this. He goes to Cyprus. Cyprus is a Greek Christian island. He, he went to Cyprus just for the fun of it and kind of ravaged the place, burned a lot of things, killed a lot of people. And uh, so what happened was that the Byzantines get really mad, and the Byzantines tell the kingdom of Jerusalem, hey, look, guys, I think this is during the reign of Bolton III. They say, you know, we're going to come down and we're going to punish this clown, Reno. Uh, you guys better not get in the way. And Bolton III said, oh, we don't want to get in the way. We, we want this guy out of here. Um, so the Byzantines come down. They kind of humiliate Reno of Châtillon. And uh, 
He, he has this groveling surrender where he begs the manual Caminus. He begs him for forgiveness. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. I promise. You know, he's a very manipulative guy. But then in 1160, Reno of Chatillon is actually captured by the Turks. And the Turks hold him for ransom. They say, all right, anyone going to pay this guy's ransom? <laughs> So he remains in captivity from 1160 to 1176. <laughs> so for 16 years, he's hanging out with the Turks. And you know, finally, they end up just kind of letting him out. And it, it's, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. He, he comes out. He causes more trouble. So we see this, this disunity emerging in the Latin kingdom becomes a tremendous liability. On the other hand, what are the Muslims doing in this period? They're becoming more unified. Saladin was the one man who's really responsible for this reunification of the Muslim world. What he does that's crucial from a strategic perspective is he's able to reunite Syria with Egypt. During the entire period of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, until we get to the 1170s, 1180s, there's no single Muslim ruler who rules both Syria and Egypt. But the Crusaders realized, look, if that were to happen, it would be a disaster. If there were a single, a single Muslim ruler who could take possession of those two kingdoms, uh, they'd kind of catch us in between the, the two ends of this vice, right, and crush us. And that's basically what happens with Saladin. Saladin inherits the, uh, this kingdom over here in Syria. Well, he doesn't really inherit it, right? He ends up having to kill all the sons of the guy who had had it previously. But in any event, <laughs> he takes possession of it. Um, and then by sheer political genius on his part, and then political blundering on the part of, of the Latin kingdom, Saladin is able to take possession of the Fatimid Caliphate, Caliphate as well. And this is, it's a really sad story that we don't have time for, but do you know that in the 1170s, right, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem actually had a garrison in Cairo? Right? The Fatimid Caliphate was actually a protectorate of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. They blew it. They bungled the whole thing. They fumbled the ball on the goal line here and just basically handed over to Saladin. And so in the 1180s, Saladin is by far the most powerful lord in the region. He ends up conquering the vast majority of... Christian Palestine, including Jerusalem, including the entirety of the coast, with the exception of Tyre. Really, Tyre is the only city down here that holds out. He captures everything else. Um, and it, it's just an absolute nightmare. And and the only reason Tyre holds out is because this one Italian baron shows up at just the right time, right as they're about to surrender. Uh, and Saladin's banner is actually already flying from the walls of Tyre. And this fellow, Conrad of Montferrat, he shows up and he, he takes the banner and throws it into the latrine. Right? <laughs> and so they're able to hold on to Tyre. And anyway, to make a long story short, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem by the late 1180s is in big trouble. It's kind of rescued by the Third Crusade. Right, the Third Crusade shows up in 1191, 1192, 1193, and led by the famous, of course, King of England, Richard the Lionheart, greatest crusader of his generation. They're successfully able to reconquer the coast. So they reconquer the coast, they reestablish a stable kingdom, but they're not able to get Jerusalem back for strategic reasons. Jerusalem is too far inland. Richard realizes, Richard realizes, that in order to successfully hold Jerusalem, we're going to have to conquer Egypt first. This is Richard's strategic insight. Any crusade that wants to hold Jerusalem will have to conquer Egypt first. And so the next great crusade, the fourth crusade, is going to have Egypt as its initial strategic target. And that's where we have to leave you. So.
Okay, so five. All right, five questions. We have one, two, three, four, and we'll take a fifth. All right, so sorry. Oh, who, who the Sunnis are? The Fatimids are, are Shiite, but the majority of Muslims are Sunni in this period. Sal, Sal didn't change Egypt from Shiite to Sunni. Yeah, yeah, so he, he, here's the thing. The, um, the Fatimids. The Fatimids are Shiite, right? But, but what they are, the Fatimids are a tiny ruling class in Egypt that, are, that happened to be Shiite, and they set up a Shiite caliphate there. Um, the majority of the Islamic world at all times is Sunni. So, is, is Sunni. so, so whenever we say Sunni, um, you know, that's virtually everyone is a Sunni in this period. So you only remark on it when someone's a Shiite. And that's, say, the Fatimids, who are this tiny ruling class in Egypt, they're Shiite. Uh, there are other small Shiite factions here and there. Um, in the Iranian plateau, you have some Shiites. But the vast majority of the Islamic world is Sunni. Almost everyone is a Sunni. All the Turks are Sunni. And Saladin is a Sunni. They're all Sunnis. So, you know, the Fatimids are this tiny group of Shiites that rule Egypt. So. Oh gosh, during Richard's crusade, there's a couple of different popes, uh, and now I'm going to blank. Oh yes, yeah, we're talking about a century later. Um, so let's see, I'm going to blank. Um, Eugenius the Third calls the Second Crusade. Oh, we have a wall here. Okay, I'll be there in a second. That's right, of course, of course, of course. That's right. Urban III. All right, here's the story. That's right. Urban III and Gregory VIII. I remember the story. Okay, Urban III was the pope when Jerusalem fell to Saladin. And Urban III got the letter saying that Jerusalem had fallen to Saladin, and he then died of a heart attack. All right. Then his successor was Gregory VIII, and Gregory VIII issued this Audi Tremendi, the bull Audi Tremendi that called the Third Crusade with Richard and, and uh, Philip Augustus and these guys. So, yeah. Well, it just wasn't financially possible, or you know, organization-wise. Yeah. What happened to that land 
Oh, there's. I think there are at least three lanceheads in the Middle Ages that claim to be the one. So are they still um, all extant in different places now? Uh, there's. I think there there are possibly even more that are extant now. <laughs> it's one of the things that, that you tend to end up with more of them as time goes on, and no, not fewer of them. No, uh, no, no. I mean, except insofar as they would have said they won the battle for us. Yeah. So that must be the real one. But the one in Constantinople had a lot of history to it. Actually, the relics of the Passion in Constantinople had been brought there by Heraclius in the 7th century because the, the Persians had conquered uh, Jerusalem. Right? Then the Byzantines got it back really briefly, took a whole bunch of stuff out, brought it to Constantinople, and then the Muslims conquered Jerusalem in, after the Battle of Yarmouk in 636. So, yeah. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.